0: during this um, Esther series, it's been a real encouragement for me to hear from a number of you that you've been reading ahead through the week. And others who have definitely not wanted to do that because they've wanted to wait till Sunday before we look at it together um, as a family, as a community. Of course, that's the way that good stories work. That's how it's meant to be. They leave us wanting more. Our appetites are whetted. We're sucked into the narrative. We're drawn along. The pages turn. We get to the end of the chapter and Despite it being well past sleep time, we just say, just one more, just one more chapter. And so it is with Esther that the story draws us forward. Little details that are mentioned and then picked up turned out to be vital later on. Turning points in the narrative. Loose ends, waiting to be tied up, waiting for an end, waiting for resolution, waiting for justice, waiting for happily ever after. And so we reach chapters 7 and 8 this morning, and well done for your patience, because we are getting there. Things are starting to be resolved, questions are being answered, things are coming together. Not quite there yet, but we're on the way. If you are just visiting us, um, I don't really need to explain what's gone on, because you're here for the kids slot, but just in case you missed that as well... The story that we're sort of dropping into is that God's people are away from home in Persia. They are in exile. They are in trouble. But Esther has been raised up as queen. Esther is a Jew. Her husband, Xerxes, though, has been tricked into sending out this edict by Haman, who we saw, the enemy of the Jews, and the edict was to annihilate them and remove them from the kingdom of Persia. Now Xerxes at this point knows there's a problem, but he doesn't know what the problem is because Esther hasn't told him who she is. And yet, as we saw in the kid slot as well, the thing we've seen week by week, chapter by chapter, is that despite the mess and the muddle and the muck in this situation, God still seems to be in control. It, he still seems to be working out his plans and purposes, It's not so much that every now and again there's a God moment, but it's that all of it is a God moment, even in the mess. And so today we're at chapters 7 and 8, and if we just hover above them, big picture structure of the two chapters, I think we get two requests from Esther before Xerxes. Twice she comes to him, pleading her case, petitioning her king. And then we get two, I think, bureaucratic problems. Do you remember Xerxes loves his laws? He loves to control people. And the problem is he's got himself, got himself tied up in knots with these laws. He's a, he's a foolish king. He's been manipulated. And so there are these two bureaucratic problems. And then we get two resolutions from Xerxes. Solutions, or perhaps even just partial solutions. Things starting to look better. So let's jump in. To the first set of the three. And it's from 7 verse 1 through to about 8 verse 2, we get a request, a problem and a resolution. For Esther, the time has come to reveal all. Last week, twice, she delayed it, she was reeling him in. And here now, she explains who she is. The second banquet. Now is the time to speak. And again, as Toby portrayed it remarkably well, he rashly assures her whatever it is, up to half his kingdom, it's yours, dear. Verse 3 to 4, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Esther's at it again, just as we saw last week. She is the master tactician, the model for us in both what she says and how she says it as she deals with her husband. What does she say? Well, verse 2... You see, he says, what is your petition and request? So verse 3, she says, here is my petition and my request. But it's not for Persian type stuff. It's not for things and power that we saw they're so infatuated by. She's asking simply for life. Life for her and life for her people. Because, as the edict said that he signed, they would be annihilated, killed, destroyed. And slavery, she says, well, that's okay. Maybe empires like Persia need slaves. Maybe even that's basically her lot. But genocide is something different. To destroy a people group that would include Esther crosses the line. That's what she wants. But notice how she says it. Again, as with last week, there is huge respect in the way she speaks to him. If I have found favour, if you value me, spare my life. Because as she says that, she ties herself to him. If he respects her, if he values her, then to not grant what she asks would actually end up hurting him. And notice, too, she uses the passive tense. That's very clever. She doesn't say, you, ignorant, rash, hasty, foolish husband of mine, you foolishly signed off this edict that would destroy my people. No, no, she arouses his anger. She she arouses it in the sort of objective, about a situation, about a predicament that she's letting him in on. And then she directs his anger onto a particular person. And suddenly... Haman finds himself in the hot seat. Turns out his family and friends from last week were right. Do you remember that they'd said, ooh, this isn't looking great. His advisors, his wife Zeresh said, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him, you will surely come to ruin. And that party that he was so pleased about, that Queen Esther had invited him to, so chuffed that was massaging his fragile ego, he would now rather be anywhere else in the whole world. Because it's all come crashing down, he's been outsmarted. Xerxes' heads outside, verse 7. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out into the palace garden but. Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. I think this is where we see the first bureaucracy problem. It seems like the king's not heading outside to work out what to do with Haman. He seems to have already worked that out for himself. Haman knows that it's game over. Maybe Xerxes is working out how to sort the situation without losing too much face again. He's just clicked that he signed off on an edict that would hugely damage his reputation because it would mean having to kill his favourite wife. Make him look like a fool. More of a fool than he already looks. He didn't know her identity. He didn't know he had been tricked and outsmarted. Haman knows his only chance is for Queen Esther to spare him and so, verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, there he was, falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Do you see the irony? It's storytelling par excellence. What had started this whole problem off? Mordecai the Jew not being willing to fall down before Haman the Amalekite. That was the problem. How does it end? Haman falling down before Queen Esther the Jew. Which Xerxes takes as him molesting his beautiful wife. And so suddenly Haman makes things much easier for Xerxes. Here's how I get rid of him. Another irony is this place swap with Mordecai. The 50-cubit impaling pole that he had set up for Mordecai to show the world how great he was, which historians tell us was a favourite in the Persian Empire, is now for him. And the swap doesn't stop there. Start of chapter 8. King Xerxes gives to Queen Esther Haman's estate, who then gives it to Mordecai. That same day, Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had now told her he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. This reversal of fortunes, we saw it in Proverbs last week, The humble and the oppressed are lifted up. And the proud and the arrogant are brought low. And so game over? Resolution, is that it? Not quite yet. Haman is out of the picture, but there's still very much this ticking time bomb of an edict that has gone out into all 127 provinces. The Jewish people are still not safe. More of that in a bit Just for now, I want you to focus in on the role of Esther again in this chapter. I have to say, it didn't quite twig until last week, or until this week, sorry. But last week, chapter 6, Esther played no part at all. You'll struggle to find her apart from at the very end of the chapter as we're reminded of the the upcoming banquet as Haman is taken off. Chapter 6, it's as if the camera has deliberately zoomed away from Queen Esther. And we see other stuff going on. We see situations. We see things going on outside of her control. just happens the king can't sleep. It just happens the king reads his chronicles. And he realises he's not um, honoured Mordecai. It just happens that Haman turns up in the banquet, in, in the, uh, the temple, um, just at the right time. And it just happens that his enormous ego means that he thinks he's talking about him, how he should honour him. And then it becomes apparent it's Mordecai. But no sign of Esther, there is nothing. She had been there in chapter 5. Wisdom, cunning, tact, sensitivity. And she's here in chapter 7. Again, oodles of insight and strategy. But in chapter 6, the middle, perhaps even the middle of the narrative, who's in charge? We've said the Lord is not mentioned, but it seems the whole book perhaps turns on the king unable to sleep. And we have touched on it before in previous weeks, but it is vital for us as we live healthy Christian lives to cling on to both aspects These two themes that run right through the Bible and we will struggle to hold them together and some of us may not even like them, but God is in charge and he is sovereign and he is working out his plans and his purposes. But in such a way that he gathers up and uses and works with and through mixed up people like us. Our actions and our words and our prayers and our wisdom and our courage and all those things matter. And we're not puppets and we have meaning But God is in charge. And the danger for us is that we'll have a tendency to flip-flop either way. It's not just individual stuff, it's church history. You can look back and you can see movements in church history who have got this wrong. Some have, almost as practical fatalists, have said, but what does it matter what we do? If the Lord is in charge, if he is sovereign, we will just sit back and we will put our feet up and we will watch the performance. We will see what he does. Nothing we do has any real meaning or value. It won't change anything. God's in charge. And then others have said, well, it's all about us. and We must be busy. And we can't sit down and rest for a second. And I need to fill my diary with, with stuff. and I, I can't sit on the sofa even for half a minute. And the story of Esther, there is a glimpse of the bigger picture. In the muck and the mess, God is in charge and we can trust him. Even through dark times, even through uncertainty, working out his purposes. Look ahead for us as a church. And we need not fear because he's in charge. But what we do matters. People matter. He is sovereign in such a way that our words and our actions have real meaning and worth. And we pray, therefore, and we act, and we trust and we speak. In Esther, we see this beautifully, that the Lord is at work. But actually through people and wise actions and wise words. And so, we're getting there, but the story is not finished. There is still this little matter of an annihilation edict. And so she comes before the king, 8 verse 3, with her second request. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. Again, it's similar to chapter 5. She enters the king's presence unbidden. He grants her admission. He gives her life. But now she's pleading for her people. She's mediating presumably in the palace, she would be safe. In reality, there would be sufficient protection for her from attacks from outside. But unlike Haman on the couch, she's not falling down to plead for her own life, she's pleading for her people. And again, she uses wisdom, tact, humility, but there's this new directness and urgency, verse 5. If it pleases the king, she says, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches. She wants a parallel edict, one that's going to overrule the previous one. Because the number of the issue is at the end of verse 8. This is the tangle no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. That's true for the initial one. The Xerxes was duped into writing. That's going to be true for the new one as well. He can't revoke the old one, but he's fine with a parallel one being written, and it really is parallel. Mordecai writes it. He's in the place of Haman now, his new position and power. And rather than taking the life of the people of God, he wants to preserve the life. To protect them. Verse 9 At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. You see, it deliberately undoes the previous one. Again, all 127 provinces, all languages, all dialects, and again, it's in the name of Xerxes and sealed with his signet ring. There is one difference. Do you see? It's the super-fast horses. He wants to get it out on time. Wants to get there before it's too late. But it's an interesting edict, Verse 11. It granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. It's striking, isn't it? It doesn't revoke the previous one, it matches it. It's an edict of justice. It gives the Jews the chance to protect themselves fact, the word used, I think, speaks of punishment for a prior wrong. It's, it's retaliation against their enemies. The Jewish residents of Persia could protect themselves, kill and even plunder those who attacked them. And so the resolution goes out and Mordecai leads the palace. Again, if you were here in previous weeks, you might see the turn Mordecai, previously at the palace, he was, he was fasting and he was in sackcloth. Now he's feasting and he's wearing royal garments, verse 15. And Susa, the capital, last time we were told was full of mourning and fasting and weeping and wailing. Now the four responses this time are happiness and joy and gladness and honor. And it's not just Susa, it's all around the empire, verse 17. Everything turned on its head. And the chapters finish with this extraordinary fact that numbers have actually increased. God protects and he rescues his people and so Persians actually join the people of God. Instead of annihilation and destruction, numbers are swelling, it's blessing and growth. We might question their motivation for joining, but join them they do. I take it again, it's a bit like the Exodus from Egypt. Do you remember we've seen that parallel in weeks gone by? On their way to the Promised Land, God rescues his people through the Red Sea, and we hear of different folk joining them. The people of God are growing. Happily ever after. But there's something of an elephant in the room. Were the Jews right to rejoice at this second edict, the fact that some of their enemies would be removed, or even at the fate of Haman, impaled on a 50-foot pole? Our modern ears struggle with this kind of thought. It was all going so nicely. Esther was doing so well. And now look what she's mixed up in. What are we to make of this kind of a story? What are we to make of this kind of a God who seemingly brings these things to pass? This kind of a people who, who rejoice in the destruction of their enemies. it it's a dampener. It's a thorny one for many, but the consistent story of the Bible is that God is a God of justice. He loves wrongs to be righted. And one day he will do that. For many in our world, they think of God as a kind of slightly ineffective, benevolent, grandfather-type figure who looks down, smiling on his people, and tuts as we hurt each other, but does nothing about it, really. But you see, if God judges no one, then the choices we make in our lives ultimately are meaningless. Meaningless. Concepts like right and wrong ultimately are meaningless. If he just pretends it's okay, all okay and he sweeps it under the carpet, then the rich and the powerful will always get away with murder and war criminals will never be held to account and oppressive regimes will just make their rulers more and more wealthy and there is no hope of justice. And so you see that a God who does not judge, a God who does not care about good and evil, who just ignores it and lets it go, really is just a monster. But he's a God who loves. He loves his creation and so he will judge. The opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is indifference. God is not indifferent to the plight of his people in Persia, the plight of his people in Peshawar. Or Christians all around the world who are persecuted for him. Have you ever wondered why we have such a fascination with justice? It's extraordinary. It's, It's on our TVs every night from real life as we watch it on the news. From detective dramas, our channels dedicated just to them. All kinds of detectives from all kinds of places. Just bringing about justice and solving crime. We long for justice. We're hardwired that way. Miscarriages of justice make us cross, make us angry. We're fascinated by justice. And we've seen it in Esther because in previous weeks we've seen that Haman is an Amalekite. Remember when the people of God were out of Egypt, in the wilderness, weak and hungry, on the way to the promised land, the Amalekites come and try and destroy them. And so God resolved to punish that people. He says this, he says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord gives you rest from your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget... God is not indifferent to the plight of his people. And so as Haman draws up this edict to destroy God's people and those who obey the edict, it's not all of the people, just some who obey it, they make themselves God's enemies too. Striking as well that the very fact we are in exile, the Bible says, is because of a just and righteous God who doesn't just protect his people but he will punish his people when they go far from him they wanted life without him they wanted to do things their own way and so he let them have that and he judged them and they removed from the land I wonder if when we struggle with God's justice and his holiness and his, his goodness then we've watered down who he is and we just want a God who is nice and who's comfortable and a God that we make rather than a God who makes us. Or perhaps we've downplayed and we've watered down, underestimated the sinfulness of our sin, our rebellion against him. We're a people who long for justice. But where does that leave us? If we long for God to be just, where do we end up? What about the sin in our hearts? What about the things that we do and say and think that reveal our sinfulness and our selfishness and the way that we turn away from God and we want to do life without him? We want to live with him as a footnote, if indeed that. Because here's the problem. Naturally, we're not God's friends. We're his enemies. And so that's the conundrum in Esther. That's the conundrum in the book of the Bible. We have a God who loves and who is not indifferent, and we have a people who are far from him, and are broken and unclean. And what you get in Esther now, with this pouring out of justice against God's enemies, is a glimpse of the heart of God. The justice that will be seen eventually. God is not indifferent to sin. Mass murderers will be brought to account. But as will we all. One day his wrath will be poured out again. One day God will punish all sin. But ours is a God who is patient and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And so you get a glimpse, I think, in Esther of the cross. We're longing for a way that God's anger is dealt with. His loving wrath doesn't fall upon his people for their sin, but instead he receives it on himself. He takes on flesh, he dies on a cross. He is raised up for all to see, not unlike Haman. And it's extraordinary, as Isaiah puts it, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace, was on him. And by his wounds we're healed. So as we take the Lord's Supper shortly, remember a God who is not indifferent to sin. As we eat bread, his body broken for us. As we drink wine, his blood shed for us. Remember our God who is not just Just and righteous and good but our God who is loving and so removes his anger from us. And so as we read this second edict in Esther and when we think about it we cringe grasp onto the fact that ours is a God who cares and is not indifferent and one day justice will be seen. But be thankful too for Jesus. For Jesus, who, who takes his anger against us upon himself. And so enemies become friends.